Welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today we'll hear a Q&A with writer-director Michael Winterbottom and actor Steve Coogan about their latest collaboration, Greed. This conversation was moderated by Scott Mance and recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles on the film's opening night. Please welcome writer-director Michael Winterbottom and star Steve Coogan. So, so the way it's going to work, I'm going to start off with a few questions, but then I'm going to throw it to you. So, so if you got questions, get them ready because I'm I'm cutting to you pretty fast. But I'm just going to jump in, and you know, the the script is the thing. So, and you guys have worked together. This is now your your seventh movie by by my count, right? Yeah. Okay. So, how did this come about? What inspired you? Um, there was there's a real uh, tycoon in England called Philip Green. And he's very flamboyant, it's quite similar to Rich McCready. Uh, and uh, so he sort of just felt like he would be an interesting, funny kind of way into looking at uh, inequality, inequality in the retail fashion industry in particular, but also just in the world in general. Okay, and y you know, was it always like, oh, well, I gotta go to Steve. Steve's my number one. He's the guy. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, no, I, um, Michael developed the idea, and I mean, I've worked with Michael this seventh film, and then we did uh, another trip. We did a one more trip movie to Greece, uh, and so that's to, in, in total I've worked eight times. But um, this movie was something that was being developed uh, separately from me, mm -hmm. um, but I heard about it and got in touch with him and said, uh, "Hey," and, and he didn't have a lead actor. So I said, I'm available. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and, and I've worked with him so, so often that I know we, we, we both have a, a kind of shorthand. And, uh, and also, I, I love the subject matter, I love what it was about, what, what it was trying to say. Mm -hmm. So I was really keen to get involved. Well, let's uh, talk about what were you trying to say? And, and how did what you were trying to say evolve as the filming progressed? I think the basic idea is very simple. It's like if you look at, uh, the, the big fashion brands. Uh, the owner of Zara is worth $60 billion, but the women making clothes for Zara in, say, Bangladesh, getting about $3.50 a day. And it just seems like, is that the world we want to live in? Isn't that a crazy world? It, it seems so absurd. You know, so we kind of wanted to try and make a satire which kind of shows you the absurdity of that and, and sort of make people feel they could change it. Not make people feel depressed or fed up, but, but why don't we just change it? You know, uh, when you look at billionaires, uh, obviously, you know, Philip Green is... is a, a big inspiration, but it's not, I feel like it's more about greenish people, like like people like him. Like I thought of, on one hand, I did think a little bit about Richard Branson. Well, yeah, but it's not, it's not really a slight on those people, it's about the system, the sort of system that's fundamentally mm -hmm. broken, really. Um, you know, 40 years ago when Thatcher and Reagan, uh, you know, free market economics was this new thing and everyone's going, the market was king. And uh, we were all told 40 years ago that there was going to be a thing called trickle-down economics, where people at the bottom would benefit from this uh, deregulation. And, of course, we can see now the emergence of, of all these uh, billionaires. Now that's not the case. And that's really what our film's about. Yeah, you work pretty fast. And how did your, your history working together really just, how did that make it easy for you to work fast? Yeah, I think if you, if you work with people you know, obviously it's easier. So it's like great working with Steve. Uh, we first worked together on a film called 24 Hour Party People about 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I really uh, enjoyed it then. It was like, uh, you know, basically what the style of filming 
that I have is just a sort of I watch you know the camera watches the actors. It's very simple. And with Steve, he's always doing really interesting stuff, so it makes it it makes it a lot of fun. You improvise. I know you've you've been you've, especially in the trip movies too. You've improvised a lot. And mm -hmm. how did like new cast members like Iowa Fisher uh, ad adapt to your filmmaking well, style? Well, it wasn't so much the improvisation. I mean, Isla's more than capable of uh, improvising. It was uh, really the, um, it, it, it's the fact that Michael works quite fast. And uh, if you're used to working on most film sets, you sort of often sit around waiting for them to mm -hmm. set the shot up. Uh, Michael likes to work very quickly. Um, and I like that because it, there's a momentum to the day. Uh, but he always finishes at five o'clock and we all go for dinner afterwards. Um, so it's quite civilized. Um, but yes, uh, for some people, I think it, it, um, th there's no hanging around at all. So people are used to a formal, a more formal, if you like, film setup. Uh, some of the, the other actors, um, I had to say, look, it's a little bit different the way Michael works. And, uh, but I love it because the, the, the day sort of marches on and uh, it creates its own momentum. Yeah. Working quickly, we, we work eight hours a day. I think that's plenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we, f we always finish about five o'clock. Yeah, I saw this movie for the first time at, at Toronto, and uh, you know, I feel like just events just sort of happen to make a movie like this just so much more relevant. I mean, I saw the movie with a different set of eyes more recently, like especially right now, and I sat through it again. And uh, you know, I'm thinking of, like I said, Branson, and I'm starting to think a little bit of our president. And, uh, you know, what's uh, sort of the conversations that have come up for you when you've talked to people about the film over the last, you know, six months? Uh, well, we've had like a couple of screenings for people who work in fashion, you know, and I think, I think it's, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think most people feel like it'd be better for those women to get paid more. You know, it's like, it's, it, fashion is a huge industry. It's tens of millions of women working in countries like Sri Lanka where we filmed. Uh, making our clothes, and it's it, it's it would you know, there's a, a large amount of regulation you know in in the world in trade. It'd be quite easy to regulate to just improve wages. But I think they all feel that they're in a market, so if someone else is going to go cheaper. They have to follow, and so so the pressure is always to go to, to go down to the bottom and go cheaper. When if we could just somehow regulate it, then it would be. Uh, be quite easy to raise their wages up, and wouldn't even have much impact on the price of clothes. The, the, you, know, you could double the, pr the wages of the women; would have a few cents on on the, on the price of a dress. Yeah, I want to ask. Okay, let's turn it over to you. Who's got a question? You've got a question. Great. Let's hear it for you for the first question. Let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. While while I was watching it, the first person that came to mind was Sir Richard Caring, but then he's a little bit too nice, and then I started to think throughout the film about Trump and especially because of what's going on right now. And you said, this is very, I mean, right now, this could not be a more appropriate moment for this film to come out. I, it's almost weird. You have well, a question? I, I, uh, <laughs> okay, all right. I, I would say that, you know, we, we talk about sort of diversity, we talk about gender politics, mm -hmm. the environment. These are things that we, we didn't talk about 30 years ago. Um, but it's, it, it's always struck me that uh, the, sort of the elephant in the room is, um, is poverty and, uh, and the huge gap between the rich and the poor, and also the symbiotic relationship that the super rich are super rich because there are people who are super poor, mm -hmm. and that is direct uh, uh, relationship. But it, it's something that um, these these other topics I mentioned are part of sort of national discourse, and uh, po poverty is something that somehow we, we kind of sideline. We think oh, it's too big a topic to to deal with. Um, but I think uh, because of the emergence of these super rich individuals, I think it, it feels like 
people have now got a sort of a renewed appetite to sort of talk about these sort of these big issues, especially with the election on at the moment. Well, yeah. also look at the movie that just won the Oscar for of Best course, Picture. Of course, of course, absolutely, about, yeah, yeah, you know, so about, yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm 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 sort of hopeful that this might help, you know, one small incremental nudge forward, so it becomes something that is part of national discussion. What, what's your take on that, Michael? Um, uh, yeah, I agree with Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, personally, I think like since the financial crisis, there've been a lot of people all over the world, certainly in Britain, in Europe, I'm sure here, that felt the system's wrong, the system's not working. You know, the average worker's not getting any better off, and, uh, you know, and, the, and the rich, the bankers who kind of caused the crisis have got even richer and richer and richer. And that kind of growing gap, the, the increase in inequality is huge. You know, and, and so I think people are looking for a change. You know, and some people you know, vote Trump for a change. You know, some people in Britain like vote Boris Johnson for a change. But there's also, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was on the other side of the argument. Bernie Sanders on the other side of the argument. I think people want a change. So it's just, you just got to fight for the right change. Absolutely. Okay, who's got, a, who's got a question? Right over here, what's your question? Nice and loud. Um, after the housing debacle, I remember when I first started hearing about uh, men who are now billionaires. And since then, now there are multi-billionaires. But that coincides with people sleeping on the streets. So this movie, to me, kind of capsules the, the unlimited greed and the fact that we put up with having multi-billionaires, and it sounds cool, but there's a price. And I think this movie basically kind of had this guy's demise in the end, because in the back of a lot of people's minds, these multi-billionaires shouldn't <laughs> exist. Yeah, thank you. That's right, that's right. I agree. I agree. I, agree. Uh, I mean, the advantage of fiction is that something terrible can happen to the billionaire at the end. Whereas in the real world, it's incredibly hard for anything bad to happen to a billionaire. It is refreshing to see him get his comeuppance, you know. Yeah, I mean, Michael, Michael made the point that, that in making the movie you know, that, um, that if you are, uh, as we see from sort of the, the children of uh, Rich McCready, is that if you, are, if you have very little talent, but you're the child of a billionaire, you're very likely to end up very, very rich, despite your lack of talent. Um, if you're the child of a garment worker, and you have a lot of talent, you're very unlikely um, to be anything other than a garment worker unless you have a lot of luck and, uh, and uh, you know, a fair wind. And it's that sort of like uh, inherited, preserved wealth. So there's, no, see, there's less and less social mobility, uh, we used to call it, uh, that we had years ago when there was the possibility for people to sort of uh, move up. You know, since when I saw the movie for the first time, I was thinking, you know, how does someone like that Regard not just in this movie, but just again the people that the film represents. How do they get there? I mean, is it really just about the the confidence? And 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 you know, like you said, there are people who are garment workers, and that's that's what they're going to be. Well, it's, it's, do you mean? Well, I think billionaires. There's often this sort of like I think a myth that uh, you know billionaires are there because they just like have this extra special skill and they and they work very very hard, and therefore that's that's why they're there and they deserve their wealth. Um, that's not my view, I don't think it's Michael's either, uh, which is that um, they undoubtedly do work hard, but a lot of it is about nifty footwork, knowing the law, knowing how to uh, manipulate people, and uh, it's, not, it's not a, uh, 
you know, it's not an automatic sort of uh, endorsement of their character. They happen to be very, very wealthy. Yeah, I mean, and certain <laughs> financial strategies help them. So, like, as it shows in the film, you know, it's like it by, by, you know, when you buy a company, if you buy a company by borrowing all the money and put all the debt on the money, so this is something that Philip Green did a couple of times, you put all the debt on the company, you then take out huge dividends for yourself, and if the company goes bankrupt, bad luck, you've already got your huge dividends out of it. It doesn't matter really what happens to the company. And that happens a lot. That's kind of the standard model for private equity is, is the debt. The debt that's used to buy a company goes onto that business. Uh, I saw on the, oh, right here, yes. Um, that, Trump, that was Trump's line, I've been interested in But I found that scene at the end of the film, uh, talking about how he was going to do even better than get his children and stuff. I thought, wow, big shoes to fill. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of slightly imagining like the Murdoch empire and all the young Murdochs trying to be more, more Murdochy than Murdoch. Yeah, we have folks on our podcast. <laughs> uh, right here, yes, nice and loud. At the end, with the the son, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so to, to be honest, like like Steve said, for me, the, the idea was, was a little bit like you know, here's a guy who has no obvious talent. You know, he's like you know, he's been the, you know, uh, and he's he's gonna, as you say, he's gonna try and become even more like his father. But but for sure, he's gonna be incredibly rich. He's gonna inherit the company. He's gonna be a billionaire, as opposed to to uh, to Amanda, you know, who's who's sort of back back where she, where she started in a way. And so that that for me, for me was more important than the kind of personal message. I'm sure there are some children of billionaires who are lovely people, but I, I wasn't really particularly interested in showing that in this film. <laughs> Saw a question right there, yes. The next trip was Greece, yeah. and did you film it around this time, or after, or? Afterwards. Uh, yeah, afterwards. About sort of six, seven months after we finished this film, we went to, but this was all shot on Mykonos and in London and thereabouts. Um, the trip to Greece is, was shot all over Greece. Um, and yeah, that's coming out in a couple of months. It, it's following in the footsteps of the Odyssey, so it goes from uh, Troy, yeah. Troy, Troy to Ithaca. With, with yeah. Steve is a modern day Odysseus. <laughs> <laughs> so go right back there. Yes, nice and loud. How I wanted to know how tightly do you script, and was there anything that made it into the film in the end that wasn't in the original script? Anything that made it into the film that wasn't in the original Well, there's, there's, uh, in, uh, in this particular film, there's not actually a lot of improvisations. There's a fairly structured script, unlike the trips, um, when there's a lot, lot more improvisation, and it's a lot more leeway. But in this film, uh, there were certainly... Um, there were a few lines. Uh, it's, uh, when there's big group scenes, it's very difficult to improvise, because you can't just go off-piste. You have to acknowledge the people you're with. Um, but uh, certainly, th th there was. Uh, but the, the the scene with the, uh, for example, the the lookalikes. I mean, that was sort of, we that was that was that was sort of improvised. Uh, and, and what happens is you sort of you, you try and think of funny stuff to say. But there was a little bit of imp improvisation there. And then Michael, if if he likes something, he goes, okay, do that again, and we'll cover it properly by, by moving the cams around. Um, but uh, I think that merged. Uh, of a situation like that. Yeah. Where'd you get the lion? <laughs> what, the idea for the lion or the real lion? The real lion. <laughs> Both, actually. That's a great question. <laughs> um, but, well, the, 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 the idea of like the whole kind of uh, sort of 
uh, Roman theme party and the gladiators and that's it, you know, sort of came, it felt like appropriate for someone who, you know, who, who is, is like Rich McCready and has all these kind of delusions of grandeur. And also, to be honest, Philip Green's 50th birthday party was a Roman themed party on a Greek island. So it wasn't a massively original idea. We just nicked it from, from <laughs> Philip Green. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the idea of the, the line was really, like I said before, it's like, like you know, it, the advantage of fiction is, is like we can have some revenge. You know, there is, there, you know, so there is a lot, you know, there is something that can extract its revenge. And, uh, uh, you know, so, yeah. So, so, so. I, mean, I, I, well, I think the, the, the line thing is sort of like poetic, and uh, and also I think um, it's, it's interesting that Philip Green did have, did throw these parties where he did sort of like dress up as an emperor, and I think these the billionaires are are the new emperors of the 21st century, yeah, yes. um, yeah. and uh, so so it acts as a sort of a sort of quite compelling metaphor. My my, my yeah. only regret now is that I think it should have been a female line, really. Yeah, because like because like the eighty percent of all the women workers making our clothes are, are women. It would have been more kind of apposite if it had been a female line. You know, there's there's a tone to the film. It's 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 funny, but it's not a comedy. Like I don't think of it as a comedy. No. I think of a movie like The Big Short. Uh, I think of uh, uh, the Social Network. Uh, I mean, there's funny moments but it's not a comedy. And how do you maintain the tone, especially, Steve, to play someone who's entertaining without being completely... Well, you, you, well <laughs> it, it is a dichotomy, you know, to try and uh, make... Because I, I don't like the character, I, the character I'm playing. I don't, I, don't, I don't like him, but I don't want to judge him when I play him. So, and also, you know, he's... Uh, you can't... Uh, even if, if you don't judge him or, and you like him, if the character is just... Uh, negative and obnoxious, then the audience is going to disengage with him. So you have to make him appealing in some way without endorsing his behavior. And uh, really, uh, although there are many people like Sir Richard McCready, uh, the one bit of artistic license in the film is that we make him witty. He's funny. He's funny and he's cruel. But he says things that are, he has funny lines that he says. He has a certain braggadocio. Um, but the wit is something that uh, I don't think you do often find with uh, billionaires. But um, but the, but the but this sort of the the, the, the chutzpah he has and uh, his sort of uh, enthusiasm and his un unapologetic uh, nature um, are quite compelling. There are people like that, and, the, and often the people who are very successful uh, are are uh, charismatic, uh, but they're also unscrupulous and. Uh, they're driven and all those things, but uh, but for me, I had to be able to have uh, sort of understand what dro what drove him, uh, even, uh, even though I don't like him. <laughs> In the hat, yes. Speaking of uh, the dichotomy off topic, did Mr. Kuby do a couple of lines of Sean Connery? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm not quite sure what you want me to do. <laughs> There's the, there's the old Sean Connery, <laughs> and then there's the uh, then there's a slightly younger one for James Bond in the early 1960s. <laughs> there you go. Can I say, can yes, say yes. that's that's the kind of direction I give in, in the trip, basically. After a while, I just can you just do a funny voice? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Right here, sir. Scenes in the factory in Sri Lanka. I assume these were real factory workers. They weren't paid actors. So were they in on it? Did they know what the film was all about? And um, was were they made aware of what their role was in the entire spectrum of the movie? 
the, um, yeah, the, 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 the sequences in Sri Lanka are essentially kind of documentary filming. And uh, we work with a, a sort of the local union that campaigns on behalf of kind of the women workers trying to improve their conditions. So we, we sort of met the women through them and they kind of you know, put us in touch with the people on the ground and we, that's how we got to filming their places. So they, you know, they, they're campaigning for better conditions, better wages. You know, they see it as a, you know, as a typical trade union campaign and the more publicity they can get, the better. I, I should say, like, I don't want it to be too black and white about Sri Lanka because... I mean, A, we picked Sri Lanka because it's one of the better kind of countries for, in terms of the countries that make a lot of our clothes. You know, the big producers are Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Myanmar. Sri Lanka pays kind of high, higher wages. And, and the working conditions in the big factories that we filmed in, you know, are, pre, uh, are pr pretty good. You know, and we were working, obviously, to get into the big factories. We had to also work with the owners and managers to get permission to film in the, the factories. You know, and their point was, like, I think, you know, in, in, when you read the press certainly in Britain, it's a bit like... Well, the brands are trying their best to improve conditions for women, but the owners of the factories in Bangladesh are dodgy and they try and cheat the system, or the owners of the factories in Sri Lanka are dodgy and they cheat the system. But in truth, they, you know, the, the factory managers are saying, look, every time they come up with a new line, they do like hundreds of new dresses and styles and, and every year. Every time they come up with a new line, it's like, what price can you give us for this? And so if they say, well, it's a dollar, they'll say, well, we can get it for 95 cents in Bangladesh or 90 cents in Myanmar, we'll just move it to there. So they, they, from their point of view, they say, well, what can we do? We can either get the women to work faster or we can get them to work for less money, but there isn't any other way of making it cheaper. All right, uh, got time for two more. Uh, let's go you first. Yes. Um, I have a follow-up to the question, uh, question about the script. Um, did you find that you had to kind of pull back uh, from the, I guess, the many themes that I saw throughout the movie, like the interviewing style or how the movie could have gone like crazy, like drug crazy or whatever. Did you find that you had to pull, you know, kind of tone it down a little bit to make it kind of tight? Uh, well, we had, I did want it to be quite tight. We, we did have to, obviously, like any film, you have to cut it, cut it down, so you choose a lot. In the case of this sort of film, there's like several strands. You know, there's, this, there's a sort of absurd parties throwing and all the things that go wrong in that. Cross-cut with lots of other strands, including, you know, very documentary strands like the women in Sri Lanka. So, from my point of view, it's like, okay, let's, we, you know, the first four weeks we're filming the party and what goes wrong and, and, and that, and then you film the other sections one by one. So, you have quite a lot of freedom in the cutting room to sort of chop between them. And then it's just a question of like personal taste, like how quickly, how tightly you want to chop, how, how much you want to rub one serious bit up against a comic bit. And I quite like those kind of gear changes where you know, you, you know something really stupid is happening with Steve and the lookalikes or whatever, and it's next to something really you know, serious happening in Sri Lanka. And, you know, because it, for me, like, one of the ideas was that the world in Sri Lanka, the world of the women seems so removed, so different to the world of, say, a billionaire on a yacht in Monaco. And it's very rare you see them in the same film together, very rare you see them in the same mm. story together. But they are, of course, really closely connected because all the money the billionaire has on his yacht has come from the clothes those women have made. So I wanted to kind of keep ch chopping backwards and forwards to kind of, you know, perhaps gradually more and more feel like this is crazy. And one more, it's yours. Um, you know, the, another industry that uh, is also very much in the hands of billionaires is the entertainment industry. And one of the worries is that, you know, Oliver Stone thing could happen to you if you question certain, if you cross certain red lines, you get basically blacklisted and you won't make another movie and you won't know, get financing. Weren't you worried about that? Well, you're the filmmaker, I'm the actor. 
I mean, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I've given up on getting much financing, so I don't care. Ma Michael, Michael's already sort of nailed his colours to the mast. That's why we make such cheap films. Uh, so I, it's not, it's not, it's not going to be a shot. Um, and also, the films Michael makes are of a certain level that you can sort of, you can sort of, you're not as dependent on towing a line, if you like. And uh, uh, and also, the industry does. You know, if it's a big, big film. Um, it might be a, a problem, but really, it's uh, you know the, the the industry accommodates these small films, and I I, uh, I don't think that what Michael says in this film is going to you know I think there's a, there's enough maturity in the industry to uh, accommodate sort of dissenting voices, but al al although um, ultimately you know uh, when it comes to vested interests, I think you you find there's there's honour amongst thieves, is that. Uh, Basically, people who are the power brokers do actually stick together, whether whatever industry they're in. So, obviously, a very provocative film. Great movie to start conversation. So, make sure you spread the word. And how how do you do that? Obviously, you go on social media. So, so spread the word. Go on Facebook. Go on Twitter. Go on Instagram. You in the back if you're still on MySpace, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> spread the word about greed. Michael Winterbottom. Thank Steve you for Kugan. coming. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.